Hey guys, it's Dr. Chloe, and I just wanted to come on and give you a quick thank you. Your support over season one of the podcast has been incredible, and I'm so, so very grateful for each and every one of you. It really means the world to me. We are currently taking a short break while we regroup and reorganize for season two, and I can't wait to get new episodes out to you soon. I also want to let you all know that I am creating a new community in school, S-K-O-O-L. So check the link in the show notes. You can sign on and join the group for free for the next month. And in there, I'm going to be uploading a couple of different courses that I've put together in order to help you optimize your health and the health of your family so that you can really feel empowered in making the decisions that you need to when it comes to your healthcare journey, whether it's the food that you're eating at home or the work that you're doing with a practitioner. So check it out. I'm really excited to be able to connect more directly with you all there. And I'm excited that it's going to be free for the time being. And you'll be grandfathered into that if you sign up now. So check it out. And I will see you there. I hope everybody's doing wonderfully. And I'll talk to you soon. Hey, guys, it's Dr. Chloe. And this is the Radical Remedy Podcast. Today is the second episode of our three-part mini-series about glyphosate and other environmental toxins that we're putting on our food and putting in our bodies and thus impacting our health. Our guest today is truly, truly one of my greatest heroes, and it was such an incredible honor to speak with Dr. Stephanie Seneff. She is a senior research scientist at MIT, and she's known for her somewhat controversial theories about glyphosates and its potential impact on our health. So join us as we delve into the world of glyphosate research, discuss its controversies, and explore its broader implications for public health and agriculture. And remember that we are building up to something big in our final episode. We're going to have Caroline Allen from Beam Minerals, and she'll be here to shed light on the importance of minerals in our diets. So stay tuned for that conversation as well. Dr. Stephanie Seneff, it is a tremendous honor to have you here. I've been following your work for years now. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So we have a lot to talk about. I've been nerding out on your book, Toxic Legacy, all week. And I really hope that everybody goes out and buys it because there's no way we are going to be able to go into all of the detail um, in this show. But I'm really, really excited to dive in. So let's get started. Why don't you give us an explanation of sort of what is glyphosate and how did it become so pervasive in our environment? Uh, sure. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. I think most people know what Roundup is because it's very familiar from your hardware store, the garden store. You go down and pick up a, a, a jar of Roundup and use it to kill the dandelions or the, or the weeds in your walkway. Very convenient. Uh, kills all plants except those that have been engineered to resist it and perfectly harmless to humans. And that's what we're told, perfectly harmless to humans. So people aren't worried about, you know, exposing their kids to it, exposing their pets to it exposing themselves to it they don't think it's it's a problem and the government has really really misled us on that because my research has shown that it is extremely toxic and it's toxic in an insidious cumulatively cumulative way that gradually erodes your health over time so it, it that's a problem with it because if you look over a short time you can get by with not noticing that it's toxic because of it, it's a slow kill i think that's a crucial part of it and you don't feel an immediate response, so you're not aware that it's poisoning you. Kind of like arsenic, you know, you get arsenic poisoning over time and eventually it takes you down. It's a slow kill. So that makes it very, very dangerous. And the government, 
thinks it's perfectly safe, at least they say they do. They're, of course, bought by the industry. Uh, they don't bother to test whether glyphosate's in the food supply, but in fact, others have tested and they have found high levels of glyphosate in crucial foods that are very common with the kids. Things like goldfish crackers and Oreo cookies and Cheerios, you know, and oat cereals, oatmeal. Um, the oats uh, have very high levels. The garbanzo beans, the chickpeas, which is like the um, uh, legumes they're called, you know, uh, lentils, garbanzo beans, chickpeas, so hummus, for example. Sky high levels have been found in those in those fruits. Canada actually tested over eight thousand different fruits, uh, both sourced in Canada and from uh, Europe and from Mexico. Uh, because of pressure from a friend of mine, uh, Tony Mitra, he's a great guy. He's Indian born, but he's Canadian citizen. He pressured their government for years before finally they gave in and gave him all the data. And he created a book called Poison Foods of North America, a very dry book with lots of data about all these different mm-hmm. foods. And, um, it's very disturbing to me because, you know, it's just that it is all over the food supply. Honey, for example, you really can't buy honey in America that's not contaminated with glyphosate. You can't keep the bees away from the glyphosate-contaminated flowers, right? So um, very difficult to avoid it, but certainly the certified organic label is a is a good thing. And Canada showed that the certified organic foods in general had sometimes zero, but also much less. So they were contaminated at times, but it was much less than what they were seeing in the um, non-organic uh, foods. And they also found that foods from North America, that's why he calls it poison foods of North America. The United States and Canada had significantly higher levels on average in the food samples that were taken by the Canadian government compared to Europe, for sure, and also compared to Mexico. Mexico came out more or less in alignment with Europe with much less glyphosate. So that's an important point. If you can't find certified organic for the thing you want to buy, buy it from Mexico, which is quite interesting. The Mexican product is likely to be healthier. That is wild. So, yeah, so the so government says it's safe, and they say that because the industry supposedly showed that it was safe in studies that they did way back when. So glyphosate was actually, it's been around for a long time. It was first introduced in um, on the market in 19, mid-1970s, like 1974 in the United States. And... Um, so the, the um, industry claimed they made some rules about how to evaluate whether a chemical was toxic or not. And, and, they, and they did some really no-no things. Like, for example, they mix it up with other things in formulations. Like Roundup contains other stuff in there uh, that's also toxic. And in fact, uh, Sarah Lini is a researcher in France who really became aware and made, and made a big noise out of the fact that the other ingredients in Roundup are very acutely toxic, uh, even much more so than glyphosate. And they can they can cause damage all by themselves, even if the glyphosate's not there. Um, and they and they uh, allow the glyphosate to get into the cells, so they basically help the glyphosate to be more toxic than it would otherwise be. And they are intrinsically toxic themselves. The other ingredients, which were never evaluated for toxicity, and uh, glyphosate was evaluated uh, on rats. You know, rat experiments that they industry did way back when, probably 1960s, where they um, they did they exposed the rats to glyphosate in isolation, which is very different from glyphosate in context of the formulations. They never looked at glyphosate in the context of the formulations. And they also looked for only a few months. They had a rule that if you didn't see toxicity at the end of three months, uh, you were good to go. You didn't have to look any longer than three months to see toxicity in animal studies. 
And when Seralini did a long-term study, which was really a very big break, uh, breakthrough, I think, in the awareness of its toxicity, this was in 2012, I believe, and he published a paper together with colleagues. And uh, they had done the same, basically re reproduced the study that the industry had done. It's sort of same number of rats and had the control group. And then they had various um, combinations that they exposed the rats to. So they had several different groups, you know, one of which was just the GMO crop without the glyphosate. And one was just the glyphosate without the GMO crop, and then the combination of the two, and that sort of thing. All of the all of the treated groups came out bad um, compared to the control group, which didn't get which didn't get any of it. And um, and, the, and but they would look, they looked fine after three months. You couldn't really see any obvious difference after three months. By four months, they started to show symptoms, and by the end of their lifespan, the females had massive mammary tumors. The males had a significant damage to their kidneys and their livers. Um, both genders had reproductive issues, and so it was really pretty much, and they died early. They died prematurely. So, and this was a small dose, so that's why it took time for the, uh, you know, appearance of trouble. But um, they demonstrated that the same dose that the uh, industry had used to prove that it was safe, proved that it was not safe for these rats. And that was a real breakthrough because I think then after, the other thing that they said is if you don't see damage at high at high doses, then you don't need to look at lower doses. And I think, think they also said that because they were aware that when you when you look at low doses, they turn out to be more toxic than high doses. It's quite interesting. That's a characteristic feature of endocrine disruptors. And now it's been pretty much proven that glyphosate is an endocrine disruptor, which means that a very low dose is actually more toxic than a higher dose. And that's probably because at a low dose, it starts to simulate uh, actual uh, endocrine uh, signal. So it, it basically emulates an uh, estrogen, for example. So it's called an endocrine disruptor when it pretends to be uh, some kind of hormone that then disrupts your whole hormonal system because it's you're getting this strange hormone showing up that isn't supposed to be there. And there's a lot of chemicals that are endocrine disruptors, but there's glyphosate is now pretty conclusively shown. And there's a recent review paper came out in the last few years that, you know, did a good... Uh, deep dive into all the papers that had shown that glyphosate was an endocrine disruptor and they found issues with the thyroid hormones, the reproductive, you know, estrogen and, and testosterone and um, lots of different issues showed up with, in the course, causing things like obesity and reproductive issues and thyroid disorder and all these kinds of things. So, um, and also teratogenic show, causing uh, uh, da damaged uh, fetuses that were, um, you know, had severe um, genetic uh, mutations being caused by the glyphosate as well. So, um, yeah, so basically it is much more toxic than we think it is. <laughs> and our government doesn't want us to know that is basically what it comes down to. Yeah, well, it is it is truly alarming when you go into all the different details and the different pathways, which with glyphosate is affecting and you do such a beautiful job laying that out in your book. Um, I'm so interested. I'm an acupuncturist and a doctor of Chinese medicine. So one of the things that as a practitioner, our field is really known for is working with fertility and helping people get pregnant, which is one of the greatest joys of my profession, to be honest. And um, and it is pretty alarming to see the levels of infertility. I think in your book, you mentioned that it's one out of seven couples are currently infertile. And I think two to three percent of babies born in the States these years are um uh, born through IVF, which I think that there's 
a whole lot of information that's sort of lacking in terms of the research on how that's going to impact the the children who are growing up. So it's all very, very interesting. Um, one thing I want to go back to is sort of the introduction of Roundup. So I know it came out in like the 70s, but at that point it was sort of a pervasive, it would kill everything that it was touching pretty much. So farmers had to be very selective with how they were using it. But then That's as right. I understand it in the 90s was when they they brought out the Roundup Ready crops, these GMO exactly. crops that everybody claimed was going to save the world and and eliminate world hunger, um, but allowed it so that the farmers can just spray glyphosate all over the crops and only the, the weeds would pass away because all of the Roundup Ready crops would would be able to thrive with the glyphosate. Could you explain a little bit why farmers would spray their crops with glyphosate right before they're harvesting the crops? Because that's, yes, that's of course, alarming uh, to me. <laughs> that's really alarming. And I, I didn't realize that at first. I had actually done quite a bit of studying of glyphosate before I realized that they were using it as a desiccant. And it was really because of the wheat problem that I picked up on that because I was thinking, gee, celiac disease, that's all this stuff about gluten intolerance, all these places section showing up in the grocery store with all these gluten-free foods. What is this? What's going on here? You know, I was like, what? That seems weird. And I knew wheat wasn't a, <laughs> okay. I knew wheat wasn't a GMO crop. Uh, I mean, I knew it, it, yeah, I knew it wasn't a GMO crop, so I couldn't figure out why it would be a problem. And then I realized that I found out that it was being sprayed right before harvest. I think that's pretty routine in a lot of places and probably pretty heavily done in the United States and Canada. And, um, and uh, that's done to kill the crop. So it's actually intentionally wanting to kill it. Uh, as it dies, in its last gasp, it goes to seed. So it ha- helps to synchronize the production of seed because you can have some parts of your field are not quite ready while, when the other ones are ready. And so if you harvest everything at once, you're going to miss out on an opportunity to get the seed from those uh, crops that are premature that aren't quite ready yet. So you'd have to kind of you know harvest different parts at different times. It would get complicated. So by virtue of it's my understanding that by spraying the crop with the glyphosate, it kills it and it, ha- and it allows it to go to seed, uh, which increases the yield. So you know exactly when to grab the seed. And then, um, and then by virtue of killing the crop quickly, it makes it easier to clear the residue to prepare for next year's crop. That's what I've been told. Of course, it's also a head start on, on killing weeds for next year's crop as well. So you're kind of... Um, it feels like a convenient thing to do. And and if you assume glyphosate is harmless to humans, you don't think about whether that might be a problem. Yeah. Just, it seems amazing to assume that that would be harmless to humans, but... Um, I know, certainly. I've, I've always been very suspicious of any poisons. I've been very careful with, um, you know, insecticides as well, but I never used glyphosate on my yard, even long before I was aware of the of specific dangers of glyphosate, just I don't use poisons. I'm always very careful about that. You know, I don't yeah. spray uh, insects in my house with, with, yeah, I have never done that. So I just, uh, common sense tells me just stay away from poisons, especially when you've got young children. So, yeah, well, and I feel very fortunate personally as an herbalist, there's, there's always an herbal alternative for mm-hmm. some sort of homeopathic or, uh, you know, herbal spray or essential oil that you can do to do a similar job that's less toxic. Um, but yeah, it is it is fascinating to think that it doesn't affect the body. However, what it is affecting is 
you know, many of the microbes that are in our gut and in our body. And I believe that you said that about, um, what was it? About 54% of the species found in the gut carry a glyphosate susceptible version of uh, this one synthase that you've been focusing on. Could you explain a little bit about the shikimate pathway and the EPSP synthase? Thank you. Yes, uh, very interesting. And that's uh, where they focus. They, you know, of course, researchers would want to understand why is it the glyphosate. It was sort of accidental that they discovered that it kills plants. You know, I think it was just an accidental discovery. And then, of course, they didn't know why, so they needed to figure that out. And so researchers discovered that it severely suppresses an enzyme called EPSP synthase. And that enzyme is pretty much universally present in plants, which is why it affects all plants. And that enzyme is a, is a part of a pathway called the shikimate pathway. It's a biological pathway. So the pathway involves several different enzymes, of which that's a central one. And the pathway produces products, and those products are the aromatic, among those products are the aromatic amino acids. Uh, there are three of the uh, amino acids that are the building blocks of all proteins in all of life. And uh, the aromatic amino acids are among the subgroup that are called essential for humans because our cells can't make them. So our cells are unable to make those amino acids. There's tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine. And so we depend upon either our food or our gut microbes to supply those critical amino acids to the host, to us. And so when, uh, so and many of the microbes, so the microbes also all, I think most of them have that enzyme, EPSP synthase, but some of them have a version of it that's a, uh, that's not susceptible to glyphosate. And that's actually very, very interesting because that gives you a hint as to how glyphosate disrupts it. And I talk about that a lot in my book. You probably remember the chapter where I showed that it was pretty amazing that, and they, they know this, the industry knows this very well. You can actually take the version of, um, of EPSP synthase from some animal, just take any version of it, you know, from some plant or, or microbe uh, that has a glycine at the place where it binds phosphate of PEP. So phosphate, you know, pyruvate is a substrate. The enzyme binds the phosphate of PEP at a particular site that has an amino acid sequence there that's characteristic. And that amino acid sequence includes a particular glycine residue. Glycine is one of the amino acids. If that glycine is swapped out for alanine, which is a minimal change, it's just added one extra methyl group. They're identical except for one extra methyl group in alanine the enzyme becomes completely insensitive to glyphosate. And this is characteristic, I think, of any version of that enzyme, that you take out that glycine, replace it with alanine, and now it's completely insensitive to glyphosate. That is an absolutely huge hint as to how glyphosate is disrupting that enzyme, in my opinion. And although what they say is that glyphosate pretends to be PEP, so it gets into the substrate and blocks the PEP by being stuck in, in the active site, the phosphoenopyruvate, so it basically substitutes for PEP and blocks it. That's what they say, but I think they're wrong. I think the way that it, it, it disrupts that enzyme is by actually substituting for glycine in the protein itself. It actually it gets assembled into the protein by mistake because the uh, assembly process thinks it's glycine. And that makes sense because it look, it is a glycine molecule. It's a complete glycine. That's why it's called gly, right? It's a complete glycine molecule except that it has an extra thing attached to its nitrogen atom, a methylphosphonate unit attached to its nitrogen atom. And that methylphosphonate is a bulky thing that's going to get in the way of things, but because it's a place where it binds phosphate, that particular protein has to have room for the methylphosphonate unit, which is what replaces the phosphate 
of PEP and prevents PEP from binding. So once you've got glyphosate stuck into the amino acid chain, it's got its methylphosphonate sticking out into the hole. And now PEP can't get close and the enzyme can't work. And I think that's what's going on, that it's disrupting the enzyme's ability to bind to PEP because it's replacing glycine in the enzyme and then uh, and then disrupting its ability to do its job. It's wild. I remember reading your research on your your hypothesis that glyphosate was replacing glycine um, years ago and just it blew my mind then it still does now um yeah it's a it's a fascinating thing to try out and i remember actually anthony samsa was the one i had been toying with the idea and i dismissed it because i thought because it had extra stuff on its nitrogen that it wouldn't work but then anthony, anthony samsa was collaborating with me and he's a really good chemist and he said no no stephanie you should take a look i think maybe that's what's happening you know and so once i did take a look i was just like oh my god this must be it because it made so much sense in terms of um when you look at the proteins that you can predict would be affected beyond EPSB synthase, I think there are many, I know there are many other proteins because studies have been done on E. coli that show all kinds of proteins that get suppressed by glyphosate. And so um, the easiest way to explain how one chemical can be so corrosive, how it can have caused so many problems, you know, so many seemingly very different problems are caused by glyphosate in, in health. And and that's what people say. How can one chemical cause so many things? You know, that's how they sort of deny that this is possible. And this is how it could, because you find the particular proteins and that have what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif. And I talk about that in my book. Not just that there's a glycine, a highly conserved glycine at a place that's essential for the protein that you know if you change that glycine, that protein's in trouble. You know, it critically depends on that glycine. And that glycine binds phosphate or possibly sulfate. It binds to not negatively charged. SO4 or PO4 uh, anion. Uh, so those are very specific things. And then I can even give the additional constraint that if the left neighbor is a small amino acid like glycine or alanine, that'll help out too because you need to have that room. So um, I've kind of characterized which, which proteins would be suspect, uh, expected to be susceptible. And then when you look at all the diseases that are going up dramatically, what's causing those diseases, it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. But it works remarkably well that you can identify the particular proteins that are um, likely to be susceptible. And then you can find some for which it's been shown because there are other proteins besides EPSB synthase that the studies have shown that glyphosate suppresses them. And those other proteins also have this characteristic feature. So it's kind of doing a massive connect the dots uh, activity to figure all that out. But once you do, you're just kind of like, oh, my God, this makes so much sense. It is so terrifying. Well, and that's one of the things that I find so interesting about studying medicine is, you know, the Western paradigm of medicine is sort of you look at this one pathway, <laughs> this, you know, you're looking at this one outcome, you look at this one vitamin, this one toxin, whatever, and you don't look at the greater picture of what, you know, what's going on downstream from that. How does that actually work? Um, and how does that have different implications throughout the body? I mean, with, with the shikimate pathway and with all that, it's, you know, it's not only affecting these essential amino acids, but it's also affecting the gut and how that's functioning, which is absolutely essential to all sorts of health. I can tell you clinically what I see is that health is determined a hundred percent or nearly a hundred percent by somebody's gut health. I see that all of the time. My son, Remy, who has a rare genetic disorder, I was telling you, 
Uh, Remy has epilepsy and he will only have seizures uh, normally with the full moon, often a parasite connection. Um, but he will always have diarrhea if he's having seizures and he will always have seizures if he's having diarrhea. Um, so I am very particular about his gut and it's very wild to see the direct correlation uh, and connection between the gut brain axis. And it always blows me away that I can go to the top neurologists all over the world and they can tell me that they see all of the time that the gut and the brain are closely interconnected. I know. I don't In know. fact, the gut can be called the second brain. I think there was a uh, a book about that, the second uh, brain. Because it may be the first brain because it has actually very big neurological connectivity, as you said, with the brain, but also it, it actually has apparently a neurological system that resembles more I've heard this, the one in the brain than the one in the rest of the body. Like the rest of the body is kind of secondary, you know, just kind of boring stuff. But the the gut has all this, you know, communication with the brain. And of course, the fact that the gut mo- microbes have so much more DNA, I think their DNA, uh, then their amount of unique DNA in the gut is like a hundred times more than what is in our cells. Our cells are very impoverished in the amount of proteins they can produce compared to the amount of proteins, the different unique proteins that that gut microbiome collectively can produce is huge. It's so much more powerful than the measly little number that we can produce. You know, they were really surprised when they figured out the human genome uh, to find out how small it was. I know they were really shocked that there were so few uh, genes and so few proteins that were being made uh, by the human cells. And so we, we depend on them for all kinds of things. We don't realize that until we find out once our guts microbes get, get damaged, we start to see all these symptoms that we didn't see before. And uh, and we finally trace it back to the gut microbes. And then we realize that they're doing these things that we didn't know they were doing. And so it becomes um, more and more evident that they are really powerful. I sometimes like to think of us as sort of a host for the, our purpose in life is to be a host for the gut microbes. <laughs> you know, We're housing them and giving them a nice environment to live in. Of course, we're poisoning them, so that's not so nice anymore. But that's what humans are supposed to do, you know, is to keep the gut microbes healthy. Kind of questionable who's helping whom, I think. It's they're so important uh, to be healthy in order for the entire earth to be healthy. You know, and of course, the same thing happens with the soil microbiome as well. There's a microbiome in the soil. And when that's disturbed, then the plants are not healthy. And that's what's happening with the glyphosate as well. Yeah, the the ecology of it all is truly terrifying. Um, who was it, Dr. Pearlbutter? Mm-hmm. Uh, compared your book to Silent Spring, which I would have to agree with. That was the first book that led me along this path when I was in college like 20 years ago and uh, haven't turned back yet. And that's definitely stands on her shoulders in a beautiful way. Um, yes, uh, I read that book when I was 14 years old. I remember it left, left a deep impression on me, probably influenced where I am today, but for sure, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's it's so fascinating to see how the microbiome and the ecology of our bodies reflect the ecology of the earth. And if we're not taking care of either, you know, the other one is doomed to fail as well. So hopefully we can wisen up a little bit and we will definitely get to some of the ways in which we can help impact, you know, our health and uh, and mitigate the risks to ourselves and to the environment a little bit later on. But I still want to nerd out a little bit further. <laughs> Um, so I also wanted to talk about, so you have a couple chapters on phosphorylation and the, and sulfate. Um, both of these seem very fascinating in terms of 
um, especially with phosphorylation, what do you see the role of glyphosate is in the phosphorylation process and how that might affect ATP and mitochondrial dysfunction? Because I see that a lot clinically as well, um, especially in the world of special needs kids with low tone and whatnot. Yeah, I think that mitochondrial damage is central to what glyphosate does to cells to make them, to break them. And of course, many, many diseases are associated with mitochondrial dysfunction. So mitochondria are these little organelles inside the cells that produce the energy for the cell in the form of ATP, as you mentioned. ATP is adenosine triphosphate. So that's got three phosphates attached to it. And whenever you see phosphate, you've got to think of trouble because glyphosate messes up proteins that bind to phosphate. So it would make sense that it would mess up proteins that bind to ATP. And in fact, the binding site to ATP has a unique signature motif. They talk about these motifs. It's quite fascinating to look at the code, you know, the biological code of life, which is so interesting. I learned a lot about that as a consequence of digging into all this glyphosate, you know, idea of glyphosate substituting for glycine. What would it mean? And to, when I start looking at the patterns, and I think it's a GXXGXXG motif. So three glycines with two wild cards bet- between them, GXXGXXG, they call that, they use this pattern, X meaning anything. Any amino acid can go there, including glycine. So it could be G, 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 G. It could all be G, and that would qualify as the motif. But of course, it often does have additional glycines besides those three. But those three are crucial. At the binding site to ATP, um, all the enzymes, pretty much all the enzymes that bind ATP have that. And so any enzyme that binds ATP has my definition of a glyphosate susceptibility motif, meaning that glyphosate could easily slip in in place of any of those three glycines. And if it does that, it's going to mess up that protein very badly. And so uh, so I have a whole chapter devoted to uh, the chapter, I think, I don't know if it's chapter five that describes uh, my evidence to support the idea that glyphosate substitutes for glycine. And then chapter six, I'm not sure if that's right, but that goes into the phosphate, a whole chapter devoted to phosphate and proteins that bind phosphate and what that means in terms of how it's going to disrupt things for um, for uh, metabolism, but especially the mitochondria are central because they're making that ATP, so they're obviously binding phosphate. There's another one um, that's called uh, NADPH, NADPH, and that's even NAD has phosphate. NAD is nicotine, nicotine, <laughs> nicotinamide adenine diphosphate, <laughs> two phosphates. And NADP has three phosphates. So those are also energy carrying um, mo- molecules, sort of like ADP. Um, and those and, and proteins that bind NAD are very likely to be uh, disrupted by glyphosate as well. And there's lots of them because they're very much involved in metabolism and they're very central to uh, the mitochondria and the whole citric acid cycle. Those uh, proteins are very important to make that work. So one of them is, for example, succinate dehydrogenase. Succinate dehydrogenase is an enzyme in the uh, mitochondria. It's central to the citric acid cycle and also central to the oxidative phosphorylation. That's what makes the ATP. It works in both of those pathways. It's the only enzyme known that works in both of those pathways. Deficiencies in succinate dehydrogenase. So people who have genetic mutations make it broken. That's a high risk for various kinds of cancer. Uh, and the cancer is a consequence of the um, disrupted um, activities in the uh, mitochondria. And succinate dehydrogenase has been shown experimentally to get suppressed by glyphosate. 
and it, it fits my glyphosate susceptibility motif. So it's just one example. There's other ones. PEPCK is another one. Phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase. I'm particularly interested in that one. And I talk quite a bit about it in my book because it exactly matches the pattern of EPSP synthase. So we know that glyphosate suppresses EPSP synthase. And PEPCK binds PEP, the same one that EPSP synthase binds, phosphoenolpyruvate. They both bind PEP. And they both bind PEP at a site where there's a highly conserved glycine. So it's basically the exact same model that that you would expect PEPCK to be suppressed by glyphosate because of this resemblance to EPSP synthase. Now, no studies have shown, I could not find any studies that showed that glyphosate suppresses PEPCK, but I think it's just because nobody looked, um, because I think it, it would. And if it does, it would explain uh, a lot of things. So it, it makes sense. It would explain... Um, Basically, it would prevent the liver from being able to uh, convert fats and proteins to sugar under situations where, where the blood sugar is low. So what happens when you get into a crisis, if you're exercising a lot and you're not eating, your blood sugar drops too low, normally the liver kicks in and says, oh my God, I got to make sugar. And it can do that efficiently using PEPCK. But if that protein's busted, it can't do that. And then you can get into a coma because your blood sugar gets too low. And that even might be a source of sudden infant death syndrome. I, I, I have a, I did a whole study on sudden infant death syndrome, connecting it to glyphosate in multiple ways. And that's one of the ways that it would cause it. Once you get too low blood sugar, you go into a coma and you can die. Um, and particularly the infant is susceptible because it hasn't yet learned that PEPCK is in trouble. Once the body starts to adjust and say, oh my God, PEPCK isn't working, we need to raise, we need to raise the level of blood sugar systemically. So basically, I think what happens is the body adjusts. It says, oh my God, I gotta take into account PEPCK is not gonna come right back with that sugar. So we better make the set point higher. You know, there's a whole bunch of uh, ability of the body to regulate things and take a look at this and that and the other and decide what to do. Really fascinating the degree of control in those regulatory pathways. So what I think is happening is a blood sugar level is raised um, all the time in order to protect you from this dangerous situation where your blood sugar gets too low and the PPCK is not working. And that leads to sort of this uh, high blood sugar, which becomes a, a precursor to diabetes. So then eventually it develops into diabetes, but it starts with this a PPCK being broken, I think. And of course, glyphosate, uh, diabetes is one of the many, many diseases here's prevalence is going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. Well, and uh, diabetes is now considered, what what is the term, like the second Alzheimer's or something? I'm, I, I oh, is that right? <laughs> like Alzheimer's well, too. Um, because no, that just, fact, Alzheimer's is, is sort of a diabetes-like condition. Yes, exactly. I wrote about that actually. Yeah, and and I know that you talk a lot also about how um, how glyphosate is impacting neurological conditions. Obviously, there's a dramatic increase in neurodevelopmental disorders. I mentioned to you before that my son Remy has a quote-unquote de novo genetic mutation, which for anybody listening, that means that it didn't come from me or Remy's dad, but it just happened in utero at some point. However, we've been exposed to numerous toxins. Both Ryan and I had been on chemotherapies at various points in our lives. And um, I have always suspected that there was something else at play um and you know in autism also clearly it seems that there is a multifactorial attack upon the developing fetuses you know their their toxic the toxic load 
uh, the neuroimmune system, all of it. But it does seem, especially from your research, like glyphosate is playing an important role in terms of the the attack upon the body. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about how you think that glyphosate is impacting some of these neurological and developmental disorders? Right. In fact, it's an interesting story with autism. That's actually where I started my history. You know, I, for many years, I was developing computer software that would allow computers to engage in conversation, natural conversation with humans, uh, precursors to Amazon Echo and and Siri, the Siri platform. And, um, Along about 2007 timeframe, I was watching the autism rates go up every year. And I was worried. I mean, they would say, oh, we're just diagnosing it more. Don't worry about it. But I was worried. And I thought it must be something in the environment. They'd say it's a genetic disease. But why is it going up if it's genetic? Doesn't make sense. And so I started looking at autism uh, in 2007. I did a lot of reading about autism. And I was looking at different chemicals to see different you know, factors and looking for something that was going up and, and trying to figure that out. Um, and I looked for five years before I came upon glyphosate. And um, during those five years, I had identified a problem with sulfation pathways. I was aware from work by a, a woman named Rosemary Waring. She was really quite progressive, I feel. She was very insightful. And she had been looking at autism back in the 1990s when it was relatively rare. She she dealt with autistic patients and she, and she did me- metabolic analysis. And she found extraordinary uh, abnormal a sulfate, sulfate uh, sulfur metabolites in the urine of these autistic kids, way, way out of line, way too much sulfite. Um, they were flushing sulfate and and other sulfur, um, you know, mole- sulfur-containing molecules. They just, their urine was really messed up as far as sulfur. And then at the same time, they had lows. They had high sulfate in their urine and especially high sulfite. And then they had, and thiosulfate as well. And then they had very low sulfate free sulfate in their blood. It was abnormally low. So they were dumping sulfate even though it was deficient, which is really interesting. And I was so baffled by that. Why would they be doing that? You know, it didn't quite compute to me. And um, and so, but I was aware then that sulfate was a problem with these autistic kids. And I'd written about it even before I knew about glyphosate. But once I started looking at glyphosate, I became quickly aware, given this glyphosate susceptibility motif problem, that so the enzymes that handle sulfur in the body, many of them have that glyphosate susceptibility motif, uh, critical, critical pathways, uh, segments of those enzymes that have glycines that are highly conserved at places that bind phosphate. And so in particular, sulfotransferase is a very, very interesting uh, enzyme, sulfotransferase. Those enzymes are crucial to so many uh, important pathways in, in biology. And what they do, they, they take sulfate off of what's called the universal sulfate donor, which is a molecule called PAPS, P-A-P-S, phosphoadenosyl phosphosulfate, PAPS. Making that molecule is also hard in the presence of glyphosate because the enzymes that make it also have glyphosate susceptibility motifs. So you might have a deficiency in PAPS, but I think especially you have a deficiency in the enzyme that takes the sulfate off of PAPS and sticks it onto other molecules. Both of those are, are going to be problematic. In fact, PAPS is a, it comes from ATP. It's basically an a, a modified ATP molecule with an extra sulfate stuck onto it. Very, very interesting. And that's the universal sulfate donor. And the enzyme that makes that PAPS synthase, I think is also going to be affected by glyphosate. So glyphosate basically interferes with the ability to attach sulfate to anything, to anything. 
And that becomes really, really problematic for many, many reasons. One of them is just detoxifying um, fat-soluble toxins uh, because they need to be sulfated in order to become water-soluble. And then they can just be released from the liver into the blood and they can go over to the kidneys and go out through the urine. So the liver has a big responsibility to turn fat-soluble toxic molecules into water-soluble toxic molecules so they can be uh, gotten rid of. And they and sulfate is an important way that they do that, that it does that, and that's getting disrupted by glyphosate. And so things like there's a P-cresol that's a fat-soluble toxin produced by Clostridia microbes, and P-cresol has been linked to glyphosate, P-cresol levels in the blood. I mean, it has been linked to autism. <laughs> and P-cresol needs sulfation in order to be detoxified. Another example is Tylenol. And so Tylenol has actually been recently linked to autism. Not even recently, from way back, actually. People have been talking about the possibility that Tylenol being taken by the mom during pregnancy or Tylenol being given to the child um, is linked to uh, increased risk to autism. Uh, in the, so the pregnancy would cause a child to be uh, increased risk of autism. And Tylenol depends upon sulfation also for detoxification. Also mercury, of course, mercury is another one that's been linked to autism. Sulfation is the, is a, is the important way to detoxify mercury. So all of these things uh, become more toxic in the presence of glyphosate because of glyphosate's disruption of those sulfation pathways. And then critically, you have all the neurotransmitters. So you have the tryptophan, tyrosine and phenylalanine that come out of the shikimate pathway, they're going to be reduced because glyphosate is messing up the gut microbes' ability to make them. And tryptophan is converted to, to a serotonin, which is a very important neurotransmitter in the brain, serotonin, mostly made in the gut from tryptophan. So if tryptophan is deficient, then serotonin is deficient. And on top of that, serotonin is then sulfated. Sulfate is attached to serotonin and it's shipped to the brain as serotonin sulfate. And I think it's supplying sulfate to the brain. It's one of the suppliers of sulfate to the brain. So basically, there's all these different, it's both um, these polyphenols, they're called, and all the things that come from the tryptophan, the tyrosine, phenylalanine are, are sulfated. You know, th those are sulfated and then their derivatives are sulfated. And then they produce all these uh, hormones that are sulfated and neurotransmitters that are sulfated. So thyroid hormone is sulfated and serotonin, melatonin, they're all sulfated. And then there's also the uh, cholesterol and vitamin D, which are almost the same thing. And they're also sulfated. So all these things and, and all the um, and hormones that come from them, testosterone and estrogen, they're also sulfated. So all these things are sulfated. And there's a reason for that that people don't realize, I think, which is to transport sulfate and deliver it to the to all the tissues. It, so sulfate, free sulfate is a problem in the blood because it will gel water. Sulfate is very good at turning water into jello. And, and that's a crucial role that it plays in the body. And every place that it's attached, it can build gelled water around it, which is actually make, makes what's called exclusion zone water. It excludes. And so the blood vessels line themselves with sulfate in order to um, build this jello, which also has a very slick surface so the red blood cells can slide through the capillaries very easily. So the sulfate plays a critical role in making the gel, and the gel plays a critical role in keeping things out, making the vessels secure, and in allowing the red blood cells to, uh, to flow freely. So it's going to mess up blood circulation if there's not enough sulfate, and it's going to cause things to get past the barrier because the sulfate builds this um, a water, a gelled water layer that is um, a barrier. It's like a vascular barrier. 
So that barrier becomes compromised when there's not enough sulfate. And then critically in the brain, critically in the brain, there's heparin sulfate. And that is uh, in, the, in the cerebral spinal fluid. Uh, heparin sulfate is super, super important for the development of the brain. The neuron, the, the whole neuron out, neurite outgrowth and the whole thing that happens in the maturation of the brain in utero uh, depends upon this heparin sulfate. And continuing on into early life, uh, the heparin sulfate is crucial for the for brain development. And heparin sulfate deficiency in the brain ventricles has been shown to be a problem in both humans and mice in mouse models of autism. The autistic mice have low heparin sulfate. Autistic humans post-mortem have low heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles. And, uh, and this gets to the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is a super important gland that makes uh, melatonin in the evening to help you sleep. And every one of those melatonin molecules that it makes is attached to sulfate before it's shipped out into the cerebrospinal fluid. So again, sulfate, uh, sulfation deficiency in the pineal gland is going to cause uh, an inability for the pineal gland to release melatonin sulfate. And melatonin comes from serotonin, which comes from tryptophan, which comes from the shikimate <laughs> pathway. So that's another problem. So you got all these problems coming at you. The melatonin and the sulfate are both compromised by glyphosate. Sleep disorder is going up dramatically, exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on poor crops. It all makes sense, you know? It all makes sense. It's wild. And it's crazy to think, what is it? I think 54% of children have a chronic health disorder these days. Um, you know, the levels of neurodevelopmental disorders are skyrocketing, but also in adults, we're seeing these disorders, you know, all of the autoimmune disorders, uh, fatty liver disease going up. We've got all of these neurodegenerative disorders going rampant. And it's, it's terrifying to look at the trajectory of health in our society. And there are so many rabbit holes I really want to go down with you. And I know that we have limited time, but I am <laughs> going to ask you a question that's been a personal curiosity for me for quite a while. Um, in your book, and you sort of mentioned it a little bit before, you talked about the uh, maternal immune activation during pregnancy and how maternal immune activation during pregnancy can increase the odds of the fetus developing or the child developing uh, autistic-like traits. Um, I know that there's been research showing that uh, maternal immune activation during pregnancy can also increase uh, the odds of the child developing schizophrenia and other neurological disorders. I was just curious what mechanism of action, if any, if you thought that that was working on, how that might be working. I remember when I was pregnant with my son, Remy, um, they started pushing the Tdap vaccine during pregnancy. Mm. Um, and that was one of the sort of things that got me questioning some of the decisions. And, uh, you know, it was the first year that they had released it to the public and they were recommending it for all pregnant women in their second trimester, I believe. And I kept going in and saying, cool, I'll consider it. Let me see the research. And they they wouldn't give me the research. And so finally, I looked it up. And I believe it was like a 30 or 40 person study that they had done like two years before um, that showed that the fetus, the, the babies had slightly elevated titers towards whooping cough once they were born. And then they claimed that everybody was all clear. But I, I don't know that there are any long term research studies on vaccination during pregnancy. I know this is treading in sort of interesting water, but I, I can't help myself but ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely think the vaccines are a, a factor, a significant factor in autism. In fact, I don't know whether they're more collectively more than glyphosate 
or whether glyphosate is the primary and then they're secondary. I can't say in my, in my opinion, but I think those two, the vaccines and the glyphosate are uh, by far the biggest contributors to autism. And I really do believe that if we were to cut out the vaccination program altogether, we would see the autism rates drop. But I don't know how much glyphosate, if we could cut out both, if we could go to organic food and get rid of the vaccines, I think autism would almost disappear. That's what I would predict in time, you know, and it'll take time because everything has to sort of work its way out. But um, I, I do believe the vaccines, I think I don't understand how I, I personally don't understand how anybody can think it's a good idea to give a pregnant woman any vaccine at any time. I just don't understand that because you know the vaccines are going to cause inflammation and they're, they're going to cause inflammation in the placenta and probably reach the, uh, reach the fetus. Um, DTAP contains aluminum, which is an extremely toxic metal. There's no, absolutely no reason, I think, why anyone should want to inject a pregnant woman with aluminum. I don't understand that at all. So my personally speaking, I'm baffled as to why the government thinks it's such a good idea to, to, to do all these vaccines. We've got way too many. And of course we have way more now than we did when I was a child. I, I, I only got smallpox and, um, polio. Those are the only two vaccines I got as a child. And even my kids, my kids um, pretty much grew up by the time, by the 1986 ruling when they said um, the vaccine industry is, is uh, excused from any uh, any consequences. You know, this was a critical law that was passed and it needs to be retracted, this law that uh, Reagan signed into law 1986 that said that um, the industry was no longer liable for any injuries that a child might have. They set up this vaccine court um, government run. Uh, if you have, if you think your child got an injury from a vaccine, you have to go through this special vaccine court. And and if you think your child got autism from the vaccine, that court is going to make sure that you're denied any kind of compensation. They absolutely refuse to admit that the vaccines could be causing autism, which is very, very frustrating to me. Well, I think it's honestly, since I live in the world of pediatric disability, I know many families who have children with vaccine injured, who have been vaccine injured. And to me, the gaslighting and the silencing of these parents is going to cause, you know, an untold amount of harm to future generations. And I think that, you know, as a practitioner and as a mom, I understand that there's a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance that goes around with this because nobody's trying to hurt these children, you know, especially parents, especially doctors, you know, everybody's doing what they think is best. But until we actually start listening to moms and start looking at the research and start being able to have open conversations about the research, about the pros and cons of every single medical intervention <laughs> for every person, um, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to continue down this disastrous path that we're on. Um, so before we nerd out a little bit more on vaccines, I just wanted to touch base on um, what are some of the ways, I mean, Again, I highly recommend anybody listening to this, get the book Toxic Legacy. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I have 15 pages of notes, <laughs> literally 15 pages of notes for today. Um, I also have it on Audible. I needed the, the hard copy for my notes, um, but there's just so much information on there in terms of liver disease, neurological disorders heart disease, autoimmune disorders. And I believe you mentioned in the beginning that there's obviously a tremendous connection to glyphosate and cancers, but you wanted to 
show how this is all happening since it really is such a slow burn and there are so many different pathways and mechanisms that are affected by glyphosate. Um, so I, I really do encourage everybody to read this. It's it's It should be essential reading for every human as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but so since we've we've probably properly terrified a few people, um, let's talk about some of the ways that we might be able to mitigate um, our uh, our exposure to glyphosate and maybe help sort of detoxify some of the glyphosate from our bodies if that's even possible at all. Right. I mean, certainly, I think that it's really important to spend more money on food. I think people have to get used to the idea they need to spend more money on food because, unfortunately, our certified organic is more expensive. And um, of course, farmers need to figure out how to grow organic food. We have a major, and more and more people are asking for certified organic. It's kind of flying off the shelves, which I find interesting. And we're also seeing more and more supply at even regular grocery stores. I've, I've watched over time that it's becoming much more accessible than it used to be. I think more and more people are becoming aware and more and more people are demanding it. And we need to grow that, that group. I think we can solve this problem bottom up grassroots by getting uh, individual moms aware of the need to feed their family healthy food. So I think number one uh, really is to switch to certified organic food when you shop at the grocery store. That's the most important thing you can do for your children's health and for your own health. And then uh, beyond that is eating uh, only whole foods. Uh, So wholesome whole foods, as opposed to say soy protein bars and candies, you know, so you want to eat foods that are, um, you can recognize what it is. You see broccoli, you know what that is. You cook the broccoli. And also of course, a lot of home cooking as well, because I think the processed foods definitely by themselves are nutritionally deficient. That's another issue because basically, when they, you know, the, the industry, the processed food industry is based on basically corn and soy and uh, and canola oil and uh, soybean oil and, and soy protein and, you know, flour coming from, from wheat. And then you've got um, sugar beets to give you the sugar. So you just mix together the sugar and the flour and, the, and you put in some flavoring, maybe some artificial flavors, you know, that is an extremely deficient food. When you make a food out of those products that are heavily processed into these individual, very nutrient deficient uh, things like flour and sugar and oil and vegetable oil. You know, there's just not enough nutrition in that. And I think we have an absolute epidemic in B vitamin deficiency and probably vitamin C deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. I mean, all of the vitamins are deficient in our food and 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 the minerals as well, because glyphosate is disrupting the uptake of the minerals we didn't get into that, but glyphosate's a very big mineral chelator, and it, it grabs onto the minerals and prevents them from going up into the plants. That's one of the first things I learned about glyphosate when I first heard about it from Professor Don Huber in um, 2012. I happened to be at a, at, a, at a conference where he gave a two-hour presentation. That's when I first heard about glyphosate, and I walked away from that presentation convinced that I had found my answer to the autism epidemic. It was very good timing because I was struggling and looking, and I couldn't figure out... And he gave me the answer, and I never looked back after that. I just kept on studying glyphosate from then on. And um, he showed that he showed experimentally that when you expose the plant to glyphosate when it's growing in the soil, it ends up with tremendous deficiencies in sulfur. Sulfur is one of the things that becomes deficient in, but also things like manganese and magnesium and copper and zinc, all these critical minerals that you only need in tiny amounts. But if you don't have them, then certain enzymes don't work at all. They critically 
they critically catalyze several different enzymes that are crucial for for metabolism. So uh, we have an epidemic in mineral deficiency and vitamin deficiency, and also an epidemic in a deficiency in all these different phytonutrients that come out of plants. So eating a lot of fresh green vegetables, and especially a lot of herbs and spices. I really want to emphasize herbs and spices. And of course, sulfur-containing foods. And so I love the cruciferous vegetables. That's like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and cabbage. They're all very, very nutritious and they have a really good source of sulfur uh, to help with that sulfur supply because we have a sulfur deficiency as well as having an impaired ability to add sulfate to uh, various uh, molecules. So yeah, so a high sulfur diet, a diet that's rich in and foods that have a lot of micronutrients. And of course, organic eggs is a fantastic food. So that's both uh, organic and um, rich in micronutrients, both both vitamins and minerals. So you want to look for foods that are like that. And fish, fish and seafood are another example. Very nutritious uh, with lots of micronutrients. And then all these different fresh vegetables and fruits that have all these interesting polyphenols and flavonoids. These are really special molecules that are present in plants. They get completely destroyed when you make when you make the processed foods. They're gone, and so it's very important to eat whole foods. And I think it's important to devote time in the kitchen to go back to the idea that you should spend time cooking for your family. You shouldn't just buy everything already pre-made. It's going to be healthier if you do that, and uh, maybe try to make that a more uh, valid activity because we've been trained to think that uh, it, we shouldn't waste time in the kitchen. We should we have better things to do, and I think we need to reverse that message. I agree completely. Um, I can tell anybody who's listening. I know that it can get tricky, but I am a solo mom of a child with multiple disabilities. I've gotten my doctorate in the past couple of years and run three businesses, and every single thing that Remy eats is homemade. It's totally doable. I'm not a superhuman. I just, I love my food. (laughs) And, um, and I think that it's the most important thing that I can and do do for him is to, to make sure that he's fed whole foods and good quality foods because he already has enough challenges that we're facing. So, and then I know that you often recommend apple cider vinegar uh, yes, based on a hypothesis. And fermented foods in general, that uh, I'm hoping that it's true that apple cider vinegar contains microbes that can metabolize glyphosate, can actually fully metabolize it to make it be a source of nutrition, which would be really cool if it's true. And I only say that it turns out glyphosate has a, a what's called a CP bond, carbon phosphorus bond, which is an unusual bond in biology. And most of the uh, microbes and certainly our own cells don't know what to do with that. They can't break it apart. So that's why glyphosate ends up sticking around and doesn't get metabolized. But there are a few microbes that can break it down. And one of them is is acetobacter. Some strains of acetobacter in a paper that I found can break down glyphosate. So it makes me hope that the acetobacter that are present in the fermented foods can also break break it down, which would be great. And that would be a good reason to have apple cider vinegar. But of course, it's also just fermented foods are good for you in general. Absolutely. I always say that... uh... Pretty much every traditional culture had a bone broth and a fermented food. So right, bone broth like- is another one that you're definitely glad you mentioned that because that's also important. Again, start with organic uh, sources of the of the bones and then just cook them slowly in the water, throwing some all kinds of herbs and spices and, and vegetables, and you can make a delicious soup actually. Uh, oh, but delicious. the bone broth is important because it pulls all these minerals out of the bone and becomes very very healthy with a nice balance of different minerals. Yeah, I love bone broth. Um, 
Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that we have some tangible steps for everybody to start taking. And, you know, I think that it's also important for people to remember that you don't have to change everything at once, but it's like start making those changes. It's important. It's worth the effort. It's worth the money. You know, there are a ton of ways that you can figure out how to, to, to eat more affordably, even if it's organic, if you're cooking the food yourself, you know, if you roast a chicken that's organic, then you make the bone broth from the bones, you know, you just sort of learn how to mix and match. And um, it's definitely, definitely doable. Um, and it becomes kind of an artistic experience, right? I mean, if we take, take food seriously, it becomes fun. Actually, it's much more than just the drudgery of cooking. Oh, absolutely. I love it. I, um, <laughs> I've been cooking like crazy all week. I got this new Mexican cookbook and it's, <laughs> it's trouble for me. <laughs> exactly. I know it's kept you longer than I should, but I just want to say my most heartfelt thing. Thank you to you. Your, your work has been so inspirational and truly, I probably would not be here trying to advocate for children's health and family's health. Um, if it wasn't for a lot of the work that you've done and for the spirit that you've tirelessly fought forward it's like really challenging times and it really is <laughs> certainly keeps me busy <laughs> oh i have no doubt <laughs> um but I'm, I'm super grateful for your time and your wisdom so thank you so so much and i look forward to learning more from you over the years and hopefully yeah. maybe you can come back and we can nerd out some more that would be great i enjoyed talking to you and thank you for the work you're doing as well very very important Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Radical Remedy Podcast. The Radical Remedy Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-slash-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.